Hey folks, it's Jared. I'm joined by author Julie Cook today to discuss her book, Titanic and the City of Widows, about the disaster and the families left behind. This episode was edited and produced by Andrew Frame. Here at SimSec, we aim to further international maritime peace and security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out simsec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. Our latest call for submissions is for the annual fiction contest. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Hello, Ashimates, and welcome back to Sea Control. My guest today is Julie Cook, and we'll be discussing your book, The Titanic and the City of Widows That Left Behind. So, Julie, welcome. Could you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself, please? Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm the descendant of a Titanic stoker. Um, he died on the Titanic when he was 40, and I'm also a journalist and, and all of that. Um, and so the first book I wanted to write was about the Titanic because of my family connection, and I felt that women and children of crew had been sort of left out from history. So that's where I come from on the Titanic story. Well, thank you for coming aboard. As a reminder to the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. To already explain what your family connection to Titanic was, but how did you become aware of that connection initially? And then how was the story of what had happened passed down within your family? Yes, so my father would uh, sit and I remember being very young and my father sitting me down next to him when we watched the Walter Lord, A Night to Remember. I was probably a bit young to watch it, actually, looking back, but um, that was my first memory. And he would sit there and say, oh, your great-grandfather died on that ship. And to me, that seemed unfathomable. You know, it was this beautiful, massive ship on this epic Hollywood movie. Um, and it seemed strange that that would apply to us. But yeah, he then explained to me he was, he was, his grandfather and my great-grandfather and um, what he did and that he was a stoker. And to me, it all seems quite distant at that point because, well, number one, I had no idea what a stoker was. My dad told me he was a fireman, right? And that meant a fireman putting out fires, obviously explained what that meant. But my association as I got older was that the Titanic was a rich person's tragedy. It was very beautiful and opulent. And so it was, it was really, I kept going back to that first memory. My dad told me, oh, your great-grandfather died on it. So do you and your family have then a different response to things like the movie? So you mentioned, and I to remember, I think the one that's going to pop in most listeners said that it was obviously Titanic from 1997. Do you and your family have different responses to things like that? Or, and I, I guess I should really timestamp this for the listeners we're recording on. I'm not ignoring you. I'm looking at my phone to get the date right. Friday, July 14th. I mean, we're just weeks removed from the uh, submersible Titan disaster. Do you and your family respond differently to things like that? Yeah, um, I I went and saw the 97 James Cameron film at the cinema. I was 20 or something, and, and it was such an epic, you know, huge film on every scale uh, that, that it was hard not to be in awe of it. But, yes, I, I prefer the night to remember. I found it slightly more thoughtfully done, I think. Um, I think also because the James Cameron film had this other story, which the Rose and Jack story, which is obviously not true. So, yeah, I, I think people have kind of created, as in that case, in Titanic, stories around the Titanic, 
myths around the Titanic and legends, which I've, I've kind of jumped on a bandwagon a bit, really, I guess. My father isn't around anymore, but he used to be quite upset about it. He used to find it quite upsetting that people were sort of making a buck really out of the Titanic to put it in, in, in a crass way. Um, whereas I at 20 just thought it was a fascinating film. Um, he's not around anymore, as I said, but yeah, he, he, I mean, there's comedy even over here. There was a comedy that had a sketch about the Titanic. He was always very upset about things like that and took it really to heart. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was emotional for him. And then did you have any reaction to what happened with the submersible Titan? Yes, of course. Um, so many reasons. One, I found it, you know, awfully distressing those days waiting to hear what had happened to those four people. It was just horrendous. And two, because myself and another author were offered a chance to go on that very submersible. And um, in 2021, we were approached by an American television company who wanted us to go down on that very submersible. At the time, it didn't get that far and I didn't go, but I had actually said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, it'll be interesting. But I, I look at it now and I think you shudder and think, God, thank, thank goodness. And um, Never happened. But yes, so obviously I was very worried about the rest of the world. That was horrendous, horrendous time. Can you tell me a little bit more about why it didn't happen, if you're able to? Yeah. Um, so there was a production company uh, who had asked me to go down as a descendant and writer. It was after my book had come out and uh, to go down and sort of talk about my feelings going down to the, the ship, really. And I agreed. And I hadn't really thought it through, if I'm honest. I hadn't thought how dangerous and crazy this might be but yes it, we talked about it we talked about date times and visas and whatnot um and then eventually it sort of fizzled out at the time they said the production company said it was because of the post-pandemic world it was difficult getting visas and things like that um but i've since heard from one of the presenters who was going to do it that actually there were safety concerns even then there were safety concerns so they didn't tell me that which I'm, you know, not that they were withholding that because it didn't go ahead, but I think that was one of the reasons it didn't happen. So safety concerns, visas, et cetera. But yeah, who knows what the, perhaps it was actually safety concerns. I think that's what it was. Yes. Uh, safety concerns is a pretty safe bet. Um, so the city in the book, what is the city you're referencing and how many of the men lost on Titanic were from there? Yeah, the city is Southampton and there were 549 uh, accounted for from Southampton who died. And um, so it was a massive, massive tragedy at the time because the city wasn't as populated as it is now. Um, and it was said that there wasn't a street in the city that didn't lose somebody connected to the Titanic. So to lose 549 men in a seafaring city on one ship was pretty big at that time. What was life like for the poor families in Southampton? Was there a systemic response to assist those families in the wake of the loss? Yeah, they, I mean, they were already incredibly poor. There'd been a coal strike that year, um, a miners' strike. So there wasn't a lot of coal coming to the ships and therefore steamships weren't sailing as often. So a lot of sailors had been out of work and people associated with the docks had been out of work for many months. Um, so when the Titanic went down and people lost their livelihoods, there was nothing. Um, obviously, no social security like we have now. Uh, so it wasn't really systematic. It was kind of um, the Salvation Army got involved initially. They were the first ones to step up and sort of get food parcels for the widows and children, that kind of thing. It wasn't really until months, months later that there was the Titanic Relief Fund, which which came to be about, started by the mayor. But that was quite a while afterwards. How did the notification process work out for the families initially? Because the 
the ship goes down, it's kind of in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, there's one or two vessels who are kind of nearby, but how are the families actually finding out at that point? Because I believe the only means of communication at that point is telegraph from sea back to what I assume is some sort of wireless office that's in the city there. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really haphazard and really confusing. Um, as you say, that it wasn't like now we have rolling news and find out instantly what's happened. That they A lot of them were in limbo for many, many days. Um, there were different editions of the local paper, the Daily Echo, which was getting most of the news first. Um, so they, they printed a first edition, which I included in my book, which said the Titanic had sunk, but all lives had been saved. Everyone had been put onto another boat and everyone was coming home, nothing to worry about. And so the first information the wives and children got was that. And that was, phew, thank God, they're all okay. You know, it's fine. And then the subsequent editions began to say, well, actually, no, there are some lives lost. And it was the sort of drip, drip, drip feeding of information, which was so confusing and so distressing for people because the many days and even weeks for some of them, they just didn't have a solid answer about their loved one. Is there any time frame where it becomes concrete as an edition announces like, no, actually it was a catastrophe and this is what has happened? Yeah. I mean, for some lucky ones, I say lucky in inverted commas, for some lucky ones, there was uh, at the White Star Line headquarters in Southampton, they had sort of a scrawled couple of pieces of paper and at the front where people could queue, women and children were queuing into the night with their prams and buggies and whatnot. Um, and they had two lists. They had a survived list and a missing list. And these women would queue, get to the front, read the pieces of paper and see which their husband's name was on. And they, that was kind of the definitive answer. Um, but for some that were still missing, their names didn't appear. Um, so it was a telegram much later, or it was simply no news meant that he was gone. Um, and it, it was, it was really tragic. My, Great grandmother, for example, didn't get the definitive news. It was, it was, I think a couple of weeks later, eventually she got a telegram that he was lost and that was essentially meaning dead. Um, so she had to wait quite a while to get that confirmation. Did the families have any particular advocates who are trying to negotiate all this afterwards? Uh, yes, they initially, no, um, initially it was just, you know, the Salvation Army and people stepping in to represent them. They were incredibly poor people. Um, and they were seen as, that was awful, but they were seen as the lowest of the low because the wives of the lower members of the Titanic, so the Stokers, like my family member, um, the Greasers, the, the guys who worked down in the boiler rooms, and then the stewards, they lived in very poor parts of the city. And so they were kind of looked down upon, really, in that society. So there wasn't really anyone to advocate for them. A lot of them were barely literate. You know, they, they didn't have a lot. Some of the children didn't even have shoes. It was a really poor area. Um, and then once the mayor, a few months later, he started the Titanic Relief Fund. That's when people started to get help, but it did take several months to get that. Um, and even then it was done in tier levels. So if you were the wife of an officer, you got quite a reasonable amount from this charitable fund. If you were the wife of a greaser or a stoker, you didn't, you got uh, a much lower amount. So again, it was still done in class just as the Titanic evacuation was. Was Did the White Star Line actually provide any of the support to these families via insurance um, or anything else? They were quite dreadful about it, really. Um, when I interviewed some people, I interviewed a descendant of a man who died. He was a steward. And they deduct, they stopped their pay the minute the ship went down. So they instantly stopped their pay. And they sent his wife a telegram saying he's lost, his pay has stopped. And they deducted the cost of his uniform from his pay as he had died. I mean, it's just absolutely horrendous. So no, they were pretty bad for some time. 
And it was only after compensation claims began to be asked for that they did actually get compensation. But that was a good year later. Um, and again, you know, some did, some didn't. There, there was It's like a court scene. These women had to go to court and prove who they were. They had to say how they were related to this person, um, say what he earned, say how long they'd been married. And back then, a lot of people don't forget, it wasn't just wives who were dependents. It was mothers and sisters. A lot of women were dependent on that one man going to work. And they they had to be sort of interrogated in a box in this courtroom, uh, which was was quite shocking, really, I think. And uh, I should have asked this at the beginning. Can you explain what the job of a stoker was? Because that will give the listener some better idea of it, like, especially one who's not familiar with uh, old, more old-fashioned ships. Uh, why would it be difficult for him to get out of the ship once uh, once catastrophe strikes? Yes. Um, so the stokers were the men who worked down in the boiler rooms, and their job was to literally pick up coal on shovels and throw it into the furnaces and keep doing that again and again in sort of 50 degree heat. Uh, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I know you use different <laughs> temperatures over there. But it's really, hot. Really, I know it's hot. I know oh, it's yeah. probably 120 degrees, uh, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Over 100. So it was very, very hot, very uncomfortable. And they it was backbreaking work. I mean, they, they had to be super strong and fit to do that. Um, they lost so much salt during these jobs that they were given salt tablets um, to replace their salts. When they got off, often they were called the skeletons is at Hampton because when they walked off the ship, they were they were skeletal from everything they'd lost. But yes, yeah, so they worked in the bowels of the ship. So that's why if you'd been on ship at that point when the Titanic hit, you would have it would have been very very difficult to to escape. All right, I've looked it up while you were talking there. Yes, yeah, fifty Celsius is one hundred twenty-two Fahrenheit. So uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's quite quite warm. Um, yeah. So Titanic is a sister ship, the Olympic. Uh, how did the crew, and that vessel was scheduled to depart just days after Titanic's loss. Uh, how did the crew of the Olympic respond? Well, they went on mutiny, They, they, which I think is incredible at the, just four days later. I think having nowadays, I don't think a company would have the audacity to send a sister ship into port four days after the loss of its, its major ship on a maiden voyage. But anyway, so... The, time, uh, the Olympic was there and was going to set sail and it was the, actually the stokers and the greasers. Uh, the greasers, by the way, were the men who lubricated the machinery in the bowels of the ship. That's what they were called. They all walked off. They walked off the ship with their kit bags over their shoulder before it set sail, walked off in front of everybody and said, we're not getting back on this boat until the lifeboats are sorted out, until we have enough lifeboats for everybody, we're not getting back on. And this was a really big deal for somebody, for people that low, you know, in the, in the eyes of society to, to make that kind of stand. And it actually did lead to change. It led to the SOLAS convention, which is the safety of lives at sea convention, which then subsequently made sure from then on that every single boat at sea had enough lifeboats. And so what those stokers did was, was massive. It was a really, really big stand that they took and a risk because, you know, they wouldn't have got paid and, and would have been risky a lot. Were there any other stories that you found particularly wrenching as you went about your research? Yeah, of loads. So many. I, I mean, there were women who had lost a husband before and then lost a husband in the Titanic. Um, women who were pregnant with child and their husband had gone away. And then a couple of women I, I looked into, they actually lost their babies because of the, the shock and the grief and the poverty. Um, mothers who lost their sons who were 16. There was a 16-year-old bellboy. Um, and, and the mother lost him. I mean, we can't imagine that now, can we? A 16 year old going to see it as, as a, as a man. But, but these women lost really young sons. Um, yeah, 
massive, it, it went on forever. I mean, I've sat in the archives in Southampton and read these sort of handwritten accounts from the Titanic Relief Fund of different women and what they'd lost. As some women turned to drink because they were just so depressed and destitute. Um, and back then, if a woman turned to drink, she was struck off the fund. So they'd stop your money until you sorted yourself out. So, you know, this was sort of post, post-Victorian England where attitudes towards women who, who sinned in the eyes of society were pretty harsh. So these women had to be very pious to keep their money. Um, otherwise, they didn't get it. So, yeah, incredibly sad stories. I'm sorry that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Julie Cook. Julie, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Um, yeah, well, I'm on Twitter and all the socials. Um, and I've just had a book come out called The Trauma of Captivity, which is about prisoners of war. And uh, the books are all available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and, and all the usual places. And um, yeah, it'd be good to hear from you. Well, thank you again for joining us. The listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. How long to